Thank you, Lane, for sharing that song. Just a few years ago, when the Philippines was still in lockdown, uh, we went through almost two years of pretty heavy-duty lockdown. And in the middle of that, I had an experience where I sang that song in my head for about 10 hours. I uh, had the unenviable task of um, expelling a student in our Bible college, but we were online at that time. Now, the problem that had occurred had occurred when we were still meeting in person, and it was a serious enough situation where that was the step that we had to take. And uh, so we did that online, but that didn't feel right to me, expelling somebody online. It's kind of easy. I could have just texted him and said, you know, you're gone. Um, <laughs> didn't really like that. We met by Zoom and whatnot. And then I just was, honestly, I was really burdened for his soul. Um, the, the, the situation was of such a nature that I wondered, does this young man who I had known and worked with for several years and knew his family, I wondered, does he, does he truly know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior? And uh, in, even in the midst of the lockdown, somehow I was able to get paperwork from our local government in Manila to allow me to drive about 10 hours uh, up to where he lived, about 10 hours north of Manila. And I got on my motorcycle. I like riding motorcycle. For those of you who like bikes, it's a Roy it was a Royal Enfield, uh, Himalayan. And uh, got on the bike, got my rain gear on because it was raining when I started. And it rained from the moment I got on the motorcycle all the way up into the city, 10, 11 hour ride. At one point, I pulled off to a gas station because the wind was blowing so hard, I thought it was going to actually blow me off the motorcycle. So I pulled off, waited for about 10 minutes or so, got back on the bike, and then actually got close to the town. And in this particular city, there's a long, flat bridge that you drive over that's about a kilometer long uh, before you actually get into the city. And once I hit that bridge, the wind hit even harder and was just... And, and I, I really did think... I was going to blow over. By the time I got there and got to this tiny little motel where I was going to stay, I checked the news and discovered that I had just driven through a Category 5 typhoon. <laughs> That's not a good idea, all right? I, I really love riding motorcycles. I don't even mind riding in the rain. But if I had known, for some reason I had not checked the forecast that morning, um, you just don't, in the Philippines, you don't check the forecast because it's basically hot every day. And it's either raining or it's not raining. Those, that's the forecast. So you just you don't, don't really think about that. Um, uh, it, was, it was nasty. It was a mess. And I, I will admit, quite literally, I was singing that song for the literal meaning of it, but also the, the spiritual meaning of it. There was a famous Filipino who was assassinated. He was the political rival to President Marcos. And he left the Philippines for a while and then was ordered to come back, and everybody told him, don't come back, because you're probably going to get killed when you do. And he wrote to his friends, the Filipino is worth dying for. And it's printed on some of the money. And that thought went through my head several times that day. Now, I'm not trying to be dramatic about it. I wasn't looking to die that day. I don't have an unusual death wish, even though I do drive a motorcycle. Um, but that thought did ring in my mind. Filipinos worth dying for. Lost people are worth dying for, aren't they? Especially dying to self. I'm not going to talk to you too much this morning about um, my experiences. I'll mention a 
couple other things here in the message. And if I don't get into too much trouble this morning and get to do this again sometime, maybe I'll share with you kind of the story about how the Lord took a boy from Miami to Minnesota, ultimately to Manila, and now to Wisconsin. Um, and the lessons that I learned along the way there. But I want to tell you the story about two other people this morning. One of them is a man who's in full-time ministry, and the other one is a man who is a lawyer, actually uh, a senior partner in one of the most powerful, biggest law firms in the Philippines. The first guy is named Pastor Denny. Pastor Denny studied at our Bible college. Now, he was an older man, so he came to us for our graduate program, our seminary program. I got to teach him in a theology of music class, got to minister in his church a couple times. He actually pastored right in Metro Manila. And near the end of his studies, he had a stroke. And obviously, that slowed him down. He did go through rehabilitation. And he was able to get back to the point where he could walk, although now he walks with a very severe limp. He can't drive motorcycle or any kind of vehicle. It did affect his speech. Thankfully, it didn't seem to affect his cognitive abilities. He was ultimately able to complete his master's degree, amazingly. And it was a joy to watch him walk across the stage at graduation, limping across there, and yet he had finished it, and he went back into his pastoral ministry, or continued in it, and then a couple years down the road, all of a sudden, he got a burden for another part of the Philippines. Now, he was in Metro Manila, a city of about 20 million, and he got a burden for Mindanao. And if you look at a Philippines map, Mindanao is all the way down at the bottom of the country, okay? It's the big island. We've got one big island at the north, then a big one at the bottom, lots of middle and small-sized ones, uh, throughout the country, in the middle part of the country. We say that there's 7,100 islands at low tide, and there are a few islands that disappear when high tide happens there. There's a lot of islands, a lot of places. Well, Mindanao is the place where Islam is the strongest, and especially in the interior of this large place. Think um, maybe the size of the state of Georgia plus a third again, and that's about the area of Mindanao. He felt a burden for an area called Sultan Kaldarat. Isn't that an exotic name? I love that name. They make great coffee there, too. They grow great coffee there. Sultan Kaldarat. It's an area that is predominantly Muslim. It's an area where Muslim insurgency happens. And he was burdened about taking the gospel there. And so he picked up, he and his wife, his kids were all grown. And he and his wife moved down there. They got some support from some Filipino churches in Manila. And they moved down to that area of Mindanao and have started a church and are working on several satellite churches from that church now. He started a little study institute. There are other missionary pastors in the region there. And he started a training institute there, taking what he learned in our seminary and giving that out in different ways to pastors down there to build them up. He still walks with a limp, still has something of a speech impediment. All of his family, including his grandkids, are back up in Manila. And in Filipino culture, families are very tight. They don't move apart. Unless, they go, unless someone goes overseas to work to earn some money to send back to their family, they, it's very, very tight. And he walked away from a church, relatively comfortable situation in the Philippine context, left family, and went to a very hard, dark place to serve the Lord. And he's still there doing it 
by God's grace. And then there's another friend of mine that I met on my very first trip to the Philippines. I went for a couple weeks in 1998 when we were exploring where God might be leading my family. And I met a fellow named Attorney Dan. I'm not going to say his last name. He might end up watching this or others, and I don't want him to be embarrassed about me talking about him. After law school, he graduated from one of the premier law schools in the Philippines. And after he got out, he ended up in the financial sector, working with um, financial law stuff. And he ended up working for a multinational bank. Very high-powered, even, you know, getting into his career. It was a good place to be. Uh, it was a place where he was going to grow and where he would earn a lot of money and have a lot of prestige. And a couple years into that work, he was already saved. He got saved in college. He was already a part of a local church that we were a part of and was serving already, you know, burdened about being a part of visitation and the evangelistic ministries of the church and other ministries. And a few years into his work with the multinational corporation, the pressures were so great, the demand on his time was so huge that he realized that he had no time to serve in his church. He could get there for Sunday services, and that was about it. And through, I think, some wrestling with the Lord, he said, this isn't right. And he quit. And he ended up working for another bank, a local bank, very, very small bank, massive cut in pay, massive cut in prestige. But it left him free to serve in his church. And he served in a lot of different ways, still does. At that time, the church was doing some like door-to-door visitation, radiating out from where the church building was. We were visiting uh, people who visited the church. We would go calling on them on Sunday afternoons, Bible studies. Uh, and at the bank where he ended up working, he started a Bible study uh, in the, the main office uh, of that bank corporation, uh, where every week, uh, many of the, the senior executives in that bank were together for Bible study. Some of them were believers, some of them were not. We're hearing the gospel. Uh, one year, uh, the man who was running that Bible study with Attorney Dan um, was on furlough, and I got the privilege of, of jumping in. Uh, and every week, hopping on my motorcycle, driving to that part of Manila, and to share the gospel and encourage the saints that were already there. And that's what Attorney Dan was about. And Every time at key points in his life where there was a decision that would impact his service for the Lord, he has, by the grace of God, always chosen a path that would keep him free to serve the Lord. The Lord has not called him to full-time ministry. He does preach sometimes, and he does a very good job. He teaches adult Sunday school class regularly. He's involved in evangelistic ministries of the church. He stays very involved. God's never called him to full-time ministry. But he had the same spirit, has the same spirit that Pastor Denny has. One called to full-time ministry, the other not. Yet both of them have been gripped by an idea that we find in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Would you take your Bible and turn there, please? 2 Timothy chapter 2. They were gripped by an idea, and I think it's a concept that we need to get a hold of in our minds, and that we need to have grip us as well. Let me read the first four verses. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage this morning and consider what it means for us, I pray that your spirit would be here with us as you've promised. I pray that he would guide my thoughts and my words. And I pray that he would give us ears to hear what he would say to us through your word this morning. And that, Lord, you would give us receptive hearts to respond to your word. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This passage reminds us, and Dr. Anderson actually mentioned this yesterday, that every one of us is a soldier for Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6 makes this clear. God commands us in that passage, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Every one of us has called to be a soldier. We have been saved to be a soldier. We have been drafted. We've been enlisted. Now, some of us are enlisted in a way that ultimately leads to full-time service, to full-time ministry. We could liken that to to joining the army full-time. I have a son who's in the army full-time, and that's his work, his life. There are other components of his life. Of course, he's married, and he's in his church, but the big thing there, of course, is, is the army. But he did spend some time in the Army Reserves. He spent a year as a student here and in the reserves where he was out one weekend a month and then called up for special duties and whatnot. And that's kind of how God, I think, calls us. Some of us are called to full-time ministry, full-time service, and some of us are not called to that. We're still called to serve, but perhaps not in a vocational or full-time way. But we're called to serve. And the passage that I just read to you from 2 Timothy 1 makes clear what it means to be a soldier. And it's not a very easy picture, is it? There are two components to being a soldier that we need to understand and we need to accept, although they're not very pleasant to talk about. And Paul wrote these things in the context of great challenges. It was a time of spiritual defections. If you let your eyes scan back to chapter one, he talks about those who deserted him, but there are also victories. It was a time then of great spiritual need, and that's the time we live in today, isn't it? This is a time of great spiritual need. The warfare we're in is exactly the same today as it was in Paul and Timothy's day. So the question is, how are we supposed to serve? What are our orders, if you will? And they both begin with the letter S, all right? The first one is to suffer, and the second one is to separate. Would you look back again at verse 3? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And I want you to focus in on that phrase, endure hardness, That is our word for suffer here. The word endure hardness, or the phrase here, is not so much about patience or endurance like long-suffering. It has to do with suffering evil or suffering afflictions. 
There are two other places where this is referenced in the New Testament where the same underlying Greek word is used. In James chapter 5, verse 10, we read, Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. What a statement by James there. And just think about who he was causing us to look back to. We're looking back at the prophets. Do you remember what the life's of the prophets was like? Wasn't very pleasant, was it? Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a pretty good picture of that. If you want to just turn over there very quickly, let me remind you of what the example is that we're looking at. This is Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 36. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment, They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Not a very exciting picture. Not something that we all aspire to. But James tells us to look at them as our example Because they endured those things. They suffered those things. They didn't run away from it. If running away from it meant running away from God's will for their life. And Paul makes this even more emphatic back in 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you turn back there, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8, we have not just a command to look to the past as an example, to look at those prophets as an example, but we have more of a directive here. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And that phrase is the same phrase that we find in James and in chapter 2 of Second Timothy. A partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Now, this is not saying that we need to experience some kind of physical trauma for salvation. There are some religious groups that teach that. In the Philippines, that's actually really common. You get to the week before Easter, it's called Holy Week, and on Good Friday, there will be people who will walk down the street, men who will strip off their shirt, and they have short whips, and they will flagellate themselves as they walk down the road in their provincial towns. There'll be other people who will walk for several kilometers with a cross on their back. And there will be some even who will literally be nailed to crosses, at least for 15 or 20 minutes. And you know why they're doing that? They're doing it to earn favor with God. It's a sad thing. I remember one time, I I, I didn't plan this very well. We were driving up to a northern province from Manila, And we were on a provincial road about an hour and a half to two hours north of Manila, right in the heart of where many of these activities happen. And we got off the main highway and we had to be on this very narrow road. And all of a sudden we were in the middle of people, just thousands of people walking along this road. And literally within eight to 12 inches of our car, there were these men walking, flagellating themselves. Now, one of the things they do to make it seem a little more dramatic is they actually dip the whips into water with red dye in it to make it look a little more like blood. It's a bit of a drama that goes on here. So most of these guys are not actually truly bleeding, but they're hurting themselves. I saw their backs. I saw the bruises and the marks. 
And by the time we got up to our destination, I actually had to wash the car off to wash the water and any real blood that might have, have been there. Those people were seeking suffering to get favor with God, ultimately to get salvation. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about suffering for the sake of the gospel so that you can earn salvation. He's talking about suffering for the sake of the gospel to get it to others, to get it to people who need it. And you notice the way Paul words this here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just say, okay, if suffering comes your way, then go ahead. Don't, you know, don't run away from that. Take it if it comes your way. Paul says, be a partaker. There's an understanding here that suffering is a part of what it means to take the gospel to other people. Now, we could take a step back from that for a second and remind ourselves that actually suffering is a part of this world and this life, isn't it? First Peter makes this very clear. We live in a fallen world. Suffering is a normal part of this life, unfortunately. That's going to change when we get to the new world, and that's going to be wonderful. But just being alive means that sometimes there's, we're going to experience suffering. First Peter also makes clear that there is suffering that comes because of living faithfully for God. And that's normal too. So that's kind of our backdrop. The suffering, that's normal, that's real. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is we need, in a sense, to embrace the affliction. Now, it doesn't mean that we go seeking it. But it means that when we are faced with the choice, I can go in this direction, which God seems to be leading me, and this is a work that God wants me to do, and I can see that there's going to be problems when I do this. I can see there's going to be trouble. And yet, I still do it. That's what Paul is talking about. Be a partaker. The spread of the gospel implies difficulty. It implies resistance. Whether it's the resistance of a loved one, a family member, a close friend who rejects not only the gospel, but rejects you as well and cuts themselves off from you because they are they're offended by what you're saying to them or because of a job situation where you choose a job that's not the optimal, not the most exciting or beneficial job to you because you know that if you take this other job, it leaves you open to serve more. The spread of the gospel implies that there's going to be suffering. The question is, how do we suffer? And the passage makes very clear that we're supposed to suffer not like whiny children but like soldiers. In World War II, there was a cartoonist. I've, I've got a book that was published just after World War II by a guy named Bill Malden. And he was embedded with troops in Europe. And his cartoons were published in the, the military newspaper and whatnot. And if you want a little slice of what military life was like in World War II, I would look him up. You'll find, it's really interesting, and they're, they're pretty funny as well. But there was a period where the U.S. Army was in Italy, and it was trench warfare. So they were dug down in these trenches, waiting for the order to move forward. Bill Malden was there in the middle of that, 
writing his cartoons, writing his reports, etc. No doubt there were times when he had to fight as well. And there was a period, it was kind of a rainy season in Italy, and they're stuck in these trenches. And guess what? There's no gutters in a trench. So when the rains came, the waters just kind of piled up. It's kind of like the streets of Manila, actually, when typhoons or monsoons hit in Manila, usually there's about 8 to 12 inches of water. It's, I remember when the Royal Enfield motorcycle I was telling you about just a minute ago, when I bought that, the day I bought it, I had to drive to the other part of Manila to pick it up. Guess what happened while I was in the shop getting the motorcycle? It started raining outside. And I drove 45 minutes from one part of Manila all the way back to Quezon City, my part, and the water was this deep on the road all the way back. And I thought, oh, Lord, this, it's the only new motorcycle I've ever owned. It's the only new vehicle I've ever owned in my life. And the first time I'm riding it, it rode through. You know, but halfway through the ride, I thought, this is pretty cool. <laughs> I can ride through floods on this motorcycle. This is great. Bill Malden was sitting in a trench with water this deep, and it wasn't going anywhere. And he said the soldiers sat there in their leather boots and their wool socks with their feet submerged. And he said, after a few days, something starts to happen to your feet when you can't dry them out, and they start to rot. I don't know what that looks like, thankfully. I don't know what it feels like. I hope I never do. And what did those soldiers do? Well, I'm pretty sure they probably complained. <laughs> that would be natural. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't get out of the trench. They didn't run away to some dry place. They stayed in the trench because there was a battle to fight. And that's the kind of picture that God is giving us here. Yes, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be afflictions that come in our service to God. We live in a fallen world. It's natural. It's to be expected. The question is, how are we going to respond to it? And the command here is to do it like a soldier. And not just any soldier. Did you catch the little word right before soldier? What's the word right before soldier in your Bible? What is it? A good soldier. There are good soldiers and there are bad soldiers. My son's been in the army for about 10 years now. I hear lots of stories from him. Most of the time he tells me about the good ones, buddies of his that he's worked with closely and whatnot. But every now and then he'll tell me a story about somebody who just was honestly a fail as a soldier. We're commanded to be good soldiers, not the kind that throws down their weapon and runs away, who won't endure the hardness. We can understand the urge, right? I have not ever been in the military. My, my dad was, both of my grandfathers. One of them was in the Coast Guard and Navy during World War II. It's interesting, he actually was on a battleship that went to the Philippines, and I heard stories about him swimming with dolphins uh, in the Pacific. I haven't experienced true real military life. But I could imagine, at least, in the throes of that, whether it be the extremities of the training. My son, actually, this is a secret, he's a Green Beret. What it took for him to get to that point when I learned about it, I, it's hard for me to even comprehend going through 
those things, much less being in battle. I think we can all understand the urge to run away, right? That's a natural urge. But we're commanded to respond differently. And the question is, are we willing to respond that way? Are we willing to make our choices that might ultimately lead us towards some kind of affliction, but make those choices anyway, just because God has made his will clear? You see, it is important for a soldier in the military to obey their commanding officer, even if they don't always know what the ultimate end or the ultimate mission is. And in some ways, that's how we need to obey God. God makes his will clear in his word. He guides us in certain directions in our life. And when he makes those things clear, we ought to just respond with obedience. But God, in his graciousness, has not kept blinders on us. It's not like he said, okay, go do this, and I don't want you to know why. He actually makes very clear what the mission is. What is the mission? What's the purpose of the suffering? I've already alluded to it a little bit, but Paul makes it clear here in our passage. If you go down to verse 8, back in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, notice what the mission is, what the affliction ultimately is about. So I'll start in verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, and this is what we need to catch, I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Did you catch what the mission is? Did you catch what the purpose of the suffering is? Paul says, I will endure anything for the elect's sake that they may obtain salvation. Now, can there be any greater cause to be willing to suffer? Anything of greater value let me give you kind of a backward paraphrase here, all right? Embrace your share of the hardships of gospel ministry because your suffering service will be used by God to bring people to himself. Now, let's be honest. We don't like this idea very much. Suffering doesn't sound very good. But you know what? We make choices like this all the time. You make choices every day about, okay, am I going to bed early tonight or am I going to deny my body some sleep in order to get a project done? Finals are coming. This massive exam is looming ahead of me. Okay, I can go without sleep for a day or two in order to get this done and do it well. I, when I was finishing up my doctoral dissertation, there were a few periods there where I was getting about three or four hours of sleep a night until I got it done. And that was a choice. I knew that if I suffered that way for that period of time, that I'd get the job done and I could go on. We make choices like this all the time where we choose our willingness to suffer. Just think about as you get close to graduation, you're going to be working on your resume. How much time are you going to put into making that resume look really good? Maybe you're even going to pay somebody to help you make it look really good. We are willing to suffer for a worthwhile cause, aren't we? So, 
What are you willing to suffer for a lost soul? What are we willing to suffer to be used of God in the spread of the gospel? Whether we're in full-time ministry or not. Let me focus your thoughts for just a minute, specifically on missions and the part of the world that was my adopted area for 21 years. The need for the gospel in Asia is almost unimaginably huge. I'm going to give you a few statistics here, but they, they're so massive they boggle the mind. Approximately 3.5% of 5 billion people are evangelical Christian. We'll put the best face on it and say all 3.5% of them are truly born again. Out of 5 billion That means that there's about 4.8 billion people in Asia that are sitting under God's judgment. Actually, they're sleeping under God's judgment because it's nighttime there right now. They're under God's judgment. 4.8 billion. Now, there are a few outliers. Countries like China, South Korea, Philippines have something like 10% to 15% of their population that are possibly born again. But mostly we have countries like Cambodia, 1.6%. Vietnam, 1.8%. Japan, a half of a percent. Do you realize what that means? You could live an entire lifetime in Tokyo and never meet a Christian. Last Wednesday, I was meeting with a group of Indian pastors online I'm going to be doing it again tomorrow morning, talking about music and worship and whatnot. And these are men who work under a cloud of persecution because there are 1,350,000,000 people just in India who are outside of Christ. Am I unwilling to suffer for such a cause? I'm just asking you, what are you unwilling to suffer for the sake of even just a single eternal soul? When we are willing to suffer for the sake of the cross, we have to be active about it. It's not just a passive thing of saying, okay, God, do whatever you need to do. But there is an active component to it. And I'll just mention it very quickly, and it comes in verse 4. There is the issue of disentangling ourselves or to maintain the alliteration, to separate. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Now, imagine for just a second, if we put ourselves back in this time, imagine a Roman soldier going into battle. They've got their weapons on, their armor and they've got their cape still over their soldier or over their shoulder. And as they go into battle, he reaches to pull his sword. And as he pulls it out, it gets caught in his cape. They can't fight. That's kind of the picture here. Being tangled up. The, the word that's used there for that is used in extra-biblical literature for something, a picture like uh, a sheep being caught in the thickets by its wool, where it's running through a hedge or something, and it gets caught. 
but we're commanded to separate ourselves. Say it this way, no soldier when in service gets entangled in the enterprises of civilian life. It's not that civilian life is bad or wrong, but sometimes it gets in a soldier's way. When a soldier's going into battle, he can't be thinking about, oh, I need to change the oil in the car. Or, oh, I got to take care of that bill. Or I got... No, when a soldier goes into battle, they have to be focused on the one thing. They can't be so entangled. I had a, a nephew who, for 20 plus years, was in the Army Reserves, ended up being a captain. Ultimately, uh, he had his own business over in uh, Michigan and uh, worked for a long time with a power company, then started his own business. And yet three different times in 10 years, he got called up for tours of duty for six months to a year. And what did he do? Well, he had to leave his work. He had to leave his business. He had to leave his family even for that time to do that. Maybe the Lord has called you not so much to full-time ministry, but to serve. Are you willing to keep yourself from being entangled in a way that'll keep you from serving? Maybe God's called you into full-time ministry. Is there something that's holding you back? Something that's worthwhile, something that's good. What is it that entangles you? It's going to be different for each of us. There was a period uh, when we were living in Minnesota long before the Lord called us into full-time ministry. I was just serving as a layman in my church. I led singing. I was a deacon for a while. I taught Sunday school sometimes. But there was a period where, by my own choices... Um, I was super entangled. I had four choirs that I was conducting, plus an orchestra, plus my full load of teaching, and I was just eating and breathing music and teaching and whatnot. I would be at my college all day long in Fergus Falls, Minnesota, and then I'd go home at night, have supper with my family, and then I'd be in my study with scores, looking, preparing for the next rehearsal, the next concert, whatever. I was so entangled that basically the only thing I ever did do was go to church and I didn't do much else. I wasn't involved in anything else with my church. And there were needs. It was a small church. There were many needs there. And there was a time where God opened my eyes to this, and I had to say, okay, wait a minute. I am entangled. And I had to cut some of those things. It's not easy doing that. If you have a sheep caught in the thickets, you're going to have to bring a shearer to cut away that wool. And I had to cut away the wool in some areas in my life. When the Lord brought us to the point of going into full-time ministry, there was a spiritual struggle there. I will admit it. I spent about a year plus wrestling with God about that. And then I finally gave in, in a sense, to God and said, okay, Lord, yes, I'll do it. And it was fine for a while. And one day I had a particularly good day of teaching at that college in Minnesota. Just everything went well. The rehearsal was great. I was feeling really pumped. And I got home and I thought, I don't want to leave this. I love our little town. I love our little house. I love my job. I don't want to leave this. And my wife was teaching a piano lesson down in the living room, and I went upstairs and closed the bedroom door, and I threw myself on the bed. And I just said that to God. I said, God, I don't want to leave this. I laid there for about an hour. And thankfully, God won that battle. I'd hate to think about where I'd be if God hadn't won that battle. To be a good soldier means we need to disentangle ourselves, sometimes even from good things. Of course, we need to disentangle ourselves from sin as well. Hebrews 1, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 reminds us of that, the sin that does so easily beset us. 
holds us down, traps us, keeps us from running the race that God has called us to. But when we do this, when we are willing to suffer affliction and when we are willing to separate ourselves from the things that will hinder our service, then we can please our commanding officer. And that's what the end of verse 4 tells us is our ultimate purpose, that he, this good soldier, may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. The mission for every believer in some respect and to a certain extent is the gospel. The ultimate goal is the pleasure and glory of our Lord. Ruth Woodward was an early missionary, early 20th century missionary to the Philippines. She was a part of the board that ultimately became ABWE. ABWE actually began as a board uh, for missionaries, Baptist missionaries going to the Philippines. She suffered through World War II in the Philippines. She was in a prison camp for non-combatants. The Japanese were not very nice to the soldiers they imprisoned. They were not very nice to the civilians they imprisoned. She nearly starved. She did survive. She got out, and at the end of the war, she went home to the States, recuperated, and as soon as she was physically able, you know what she did? She got on the next boat back to the Philippines and stayed there into the 1960s until she died. There's a little church up in the city of Baguio, Baguio Baptist Church, and at the back of that auditorium, there's this little picture of this little woman named Ruth Woodward who hardly anybody knows about. And yet God used her to bring many people to Christ because she was willing to suffer and to separate. Last little story here. Jimmy Stewart, not a missionary, okay? The actor, Jimmy Stewart, It's a Wonderful Life. He fought in World War II. He was a pilot in the Air Force, in the U.S. Army Air Force, flying bombers. And at one point in the war, he and his squadron were going to be flying deep into German territory to bomb a munitions plant. And it was far enough over enemy territory that it was very clear some people would not make it back, that some of their planes would be shot down. And the night before, Jimmy Stewart recorded a prayer. I don't know if he was truly born again. He grew up Presbyterian, remained Presbyterian. I hope that he truly truly knew the Lord. I don't know. Only God does. But this is what he prayed the night before that mission. Let me tell you what he didn't pray. He didn't pray that he would make it back safe. He didn't pray that he'd survive and all the other pilots would survive. Do you know what he prayed? He prayed that the mission would be successful. That's the spirit God wants each of us to have. Certainly in general in following him, but especially for the spread of the gospel. One Puritan writer in the Valley of Vision said this, Sovereign God, this wonderful prayer, Sovereign God, thy cause, not my own, engages my heart, and I appeal to thee with greatest freedom to set up thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify thyself, and I shall rejoice, for to bring honor to thy name 
is my sole desire. It is thy cause and kingdom I long for, not my own. We're surrounded by people who need the gospel here and far away. Are we willing to be suffering and separated soldiers for that cause? Whether God calls us to full-time ministry, like Pastor Denny, or God calls us to a layman's life, like Attorney Dan. God's called all of us to be soldiers. What kind of soldier do you want to be? Heavenly Father, we commit to you this time in your word. And Lord, you know our hearts, our true state before you is not hidden. And so Lord, I pray that as we've looked at these things in your word, as we've meditated on these things, I, I have a feeling that your spirit is speaking to each of us in some way, putting his finger on something in our lives. And Lord, I pray that here, even at the end of this chapel, before we rush off to the next things we need to do, we would respond to what your Spirit is saying to us throughout this day and the coming days and weeks. We would commit ourselves to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. We can't do it without your help, Lord, but we know it's what you've called us to. So we'll thank you for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.